Mask Radio Influence, podcasting redefined. Welcome back to the Lawfather podcast. We are here in Lawfather headquarters. Uh, those of you who are on Instagram right now, we are streaming live on Instagram, which we are at the Lawfather Tampa. Facebook and TikTok, we are at the Lawfather. TikTok is a really weird place if uh, you aren't familiar with it. So take a look at it. It's just a really weird, bizarre, crazy social media. Uh, Twitter, we are at the Lawfather TPA. Phone number, 855-LAWFATHER. As always, for this show, and it's dedicated to this show only, uh, lawfather at tampalawfather.com. So if you have any questions that you want answered on this podcast, go ahead and reach out to the law fa- excuse me, reach out to lawfather at tampalawfather.com. As always, personal injury attorneys, and we use this company, Bravo Delta Legal Services, 813-591-4259, bravodeltalegal.com. They will go get your medical records for you. All right. So in the last podcast episode, we discussed the Kobe Bryant case and it had made some national news saying that, hey, the helicopter pilot and the helicopter company are saying that Kobe Bryant's at fault and his daughter's at fault. And I think you can follow that all on, on down the line to the attempt to say that all of the plaintiffs were at fault. And we discussed what that really means and we went through, and I'm just going to give you a quick recap because we spent a, a lot of time on on what it is. But the family of Kobe Bryant filed a 77-page complaint. Now, by I mean the family, uh, through a lawyer, so the family didn't actually do it. And when we're talking about the responses, the helicopter pilot and the helicopter company didn't actually write these things. An attorney wrote these documents. For the plaintiffs, it was a complaint. For the defendants, it's called an answer. Theoretically, a, an individual can represent themselves, but a company cannot. So the helicopter company has to hire an attorney. Uh, I've had times where I've had defendants on the other side who have owned companies and they've tried to represent themselves. And it always ends the same way. The judge tells them, you have to go hire an attorney. So that's how that part of it works. But the family of Kobe Bryant and his daughter, hired a lawyer and that lawyer filed a 77 page complaint with, I think it was 20 some allegations or 20 some counts, basically 20 reasons why the helicopter company should pay or why the helicopter pilot should pay. Now, obviously, uh, the pilot died in the crash as well. So not the pilot himself, but the estate of the pilot. And that's who is actually bringing the defense for the pilot is a representative, uh, just like on the Kobe Bryant side. Obviously, Kobe Bryant can't be a plaintiff. He's unfortunately no longer with us. So his wife steps in his shoes and acts on his behalf. Same thing with the pilot. And it is also unfortunate that he lost his life in this. Look, there's no good ending to this story. No amount of money brings these people back. No amount of fixing safety features or adding uh, different equipment to the helicopters or putting new procedures in place. None of that brings anybody back. Okay. So let's just wrap our head around that for just one second. Uh, The only method that we ever have in the legal field is, is monetary. All right. Yeah, there are some exceptions to that, but that's probably for another day. 
So when we're talking about these things and the and the exceptions to the non-monetary things are, are very, very limited. So for the most part, we're always going to be talking about money. And it sounds callous, not it may be, but it's the only thing available, right? We're not bringing Kobe Bryant back. We're not bringing the pilot back. Uh, we're not bringing that helicopter back that the helicopter company owned. None of that comes back, okay? So uh, no amount of money or no about no amount of being right or being wrong changes that aspect to it. So probably spent a little bit too much time on that part of it, but I, I do want to make that part really ultra clear. And, and this may be, you know, I, I know sometimes lawyers get bad names and this may be a reason why, because, hey, as a defense attorney, you have to provide some defense. And I read through both of the answers filed by the attorneys for the pilot and for the helicopter company. And, you know, by and large, they're essentially what I would call boilerplate. There wasn't anything in there that really surprised me. Uh, a lot of the stuff I would expect to see on even your garden variety fender bender case with minor injuries that somehow made its way into a trial setting. So just because this was a really involved helicopter crash into a mountain and you had everybody involved in it die from the crash, at the end of the day, the legal aspect to it is the legal aspect. And defense attorneys, unfortunately for them, sometimes have to make the unpopular argument Right. You know, I think in the court of public opinion, you'd get in a unanimous. This is all the helicopter company's fault and it's all the pilots fault. The, the passengers, they did absolutely nothing wrong. And how dare anybody say any different? And, you know, I think when you're talking about somebody that had the reputation and the magnitude of a Kobe Bryant, I think that's magnified even more. So really difficult for these defense attorneys because they have to make some argument. And as I mentioned last time, your options are this on the defense side. You either make an argument that most likely is going to be not popular, one that no one's going to like, especially when you start blaming victims, uh, victims of, as I mentioned, the magnitude of a Kobe Bryant, victims that are no longer with us. You're going to get an unpopular response, I think. Now, this doesn't usually make the news because you're not usually talking about somebody that is that newsworthy, not, not saying that any one life is, has a higher value than any other life when you're talking about the life itself. But in the legal side, we have to put a value on these things. And the value of it is based on his ability to provide for his family. So what the defense is trying to mitigate, which is not necessarily a fancy legal term, but it's not something that I don't think comes up in everyday everyday jargon. So when we're talking about a mitigation, it's how do we lessen the effects? How, how do we lessen the amount that we're going to have to pay out? And by we, I mean the defense. So the defense has two options. They can make the unpopular arguments and try to lessen their burden, or they can just open up their checkbook and write a blank check and let the family fill in as many zeros as they want. Those are kind of the two options. I mean, look, at the end of the day, does this case most likely resolve without the need for a trial? Yes. Okay. Probabilities tell us that because somewhere less than 2% of all cases go to trial. And when you're talking about something big like this, you know, there's, there's a, in my opinion, there's probably a better chance of it not going to trial because of all the bad press that can come along with that and all the other intangible aspects. But that said, 
I would also say, uh, without contradicting myself, but I guess uh, sometimes as a lawyer, you have to do that because you live in this really fluid world uh, when you're talking about paying out millions, millions of dollars. And what I've seen from my experience is when an insurance company has to cross that threshold of six figures, hundreds of thousands, into the seven figures, millions, they don't like doing that willingly. They almost would rather have a jury tell them to do so so that they can go to their shareholders or their CEO or whoever they answer to and go, look, we didn't pay this out. They told us to and we didn't have a choice. Okay, so that gets us to what are these defenses and how does this all work? So we're going to start with the pilot's answer. All right. So the plaintiff in a case files a complaint that starts the process that then gives depending on the circumstances. So if you just file a complaint, the defendant has 20 days to respond and that response comes in the form of an answer. So not trying to be too elementary, but that's, you know, some of the things in the legal world, we just call them what they are and it's an answer. And so that's the response to it. Now, there are other types of responses, but the only actual what we would call response of pleading to a complaint is an answer. So the pilot's attorney through one of the pilot's relatives, I believe it's his brother who's acting as his representative, filed an answer with 13 affirmative defenses. All right. What's an affirmative defense? A def- an affirmative defense is a defense which introduces evidence to negate liability. So little different than just saying, no, it wasn't my fault. No, I didn't do that. No, it didn't happen quite like that. In an affirmative defense, you're saying it's not my fault. It's his fault or it's this other person's fault. Or as we're going to find out that it was an act of God and theoretically then it's God's fault. Okay, that's what an affirmative defense is saying. Now, we're also going to hear another term that isn't necessarily solely dedicated to the legal world, but to give it a little bit of an explanation, damages. All right. Damages are what we talk about in terms of what a case value has, how much money the defendant should pay her, how much money the jury should pay the plaintiff. And damages are made up of Uh, Things such as if the person doesn't die, like as in this case, uh, your medical bills, your future medical bills, your pain and suffering. That's what we typically see on an everyday basis. All right. When we're talking about a wrongful death case, we're talking about um, for Vanessa Bryant, there will be what's called a consortium portion. So Kobe was around. Kobe provided a uh, companionship for her and husband duties and maybe he mowed the lawn and did the dishes and things like that. Normal everyday things. That's what a consortium claim is. All of those things that he's no longer able to do, that falls in along the line of damages. All right. His inability to provide for the family from a financial aspect, that is considered damages as well. Guidance for the children and parenting. All of that is what these damages are. So you're going to hear hear the term damages as we work our way through this. And that's what damages are. So we're going to look at the first one, both answers, the pilots and the helicopter company, really standard boilerplate. We see it all the time uh, in car crashes, failure to state a claim. Hey, the plaintiff, they wrote this great 77 page complaint, but nowhere in that did they say why we defendants are at fault. 
you know, it, it's standard boilerplate. They put it in, never goes anywhere. Uh, I guess maybe the defense attorneys, they get to bill an extra couple minutes writing that one paragraph in knowing it's never going to go anywhere. But it's always in there, never goes anywhere. Uh, and this is where in the pilot's answer and his affirmative defenses, we get into kind of the good stuff, right? We're getting into the TMZ style of, hey, this wasn't the pilot's fault. <laughs> this was Kobe Bryant's fault. This was his daughter's fault. This was all the passenger's fault. Not the pilot. Nope, not the guy driving the helicopter. Okay, it was the passenger's fault. Think about that for a second. Think about it. Regular everyday life, you're driving a car. You're in a car. You're a passenger in a car. Do you have a whole lot of ability to change what that driver does? Yeah, you, hey, slow down, buddy. Come on. Come on, bro. Slow down. You know, it's raining. It's whatever. You don't really have that much control. What are you going to jump out of the car while it's doing 35 miles an hour down West Shore Boulevard? I don't think so. Not going to happen. Okay. I'm not jumping out. But anyway, be that as it may, the helicopter pilot says that the plaintiffs were either partially or fully negligent, and this negligence caused the injuries. So what that's saying is that the plaintiffs either did something or didn't do something that they should have done to prevent their injuries. That's what that's saying. Now, in the real world, we hear, real world, we hear that and we go, oh my God, that sounds bad. It's a standard defense in pretty much every injury case. All right. So that's where that one falls. Now, in that same affirmative defense and this one, you know, although pretty standard, it really makes you scratch your head. Defendant bears no responsibility. You were the pilot. You're driving. A, you were flying a helicopter and you flew it into a mountain. Not really sure how you don't bear any responsibility. OK. And as I've said, and I'll, I'll say it again, it, he didn't deserve that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, if you will. Okay. He didn't, if he made a mistake, if he, if he made a human error in flying the plane, he didn't deserve to die as a result of it. Okay. I just want to make that abundantly clear. But this is the type of thing that if a media company picks it up, a TMZ or a, a newspaper or anybody else picks this up and reads this, and they're going to look at it from the lay perspective and not the legal perspective, you're going to have this really weird kind of interplay of, well, the pilot bears no responsibility. And, you know, it, it's just it's just one of those answers that they throw out there to try to say, hey, we got to say something. We got to defend our client in some way. So that's what we're going to say. Number three, that the negligence is on a third party. Well, we've already said so far that it's on the plaintiffs. They were the passengers and that the pilot has no responsibility. I'm not really sure who this third party could be that they're saying cause this, maybe the mountain, not sure, but not can't come up with a third party on this one, but that's what they're saying. Their, their next one, and, I, and I'm sh cutting these a little short, okay? Like I said, there's 13. I picked out four of them to discuss because the rest of them really uh, aren't discussion worthy, if you will. Um, the, this, the defendant's conduct was not a substantial factor in the plaintiff's damages. So essentially what they're saying is, is that the flying of the helicopter into the mountain was not a substantial factor in the outcome. It was not a substantial factor in uh, all of these passengers losing their lives. Kind of a tough one. <laughs> uh, 
not really sure what other factor could have resulted in it. Um, and, you know, I, I believe and I was hearing about this one the other day, uh, Payne Stewart crash. I don't know uh, if any of you out there listening are familiar with it. There was a Learjet crash and I don't know a ton about it. Um, I actually have a good friend of mine uh, who I work with uh, some football stuff with. Uh, with our football representation, his firm provided the defense for it. And I, I believe they were successful. I don't know. They have a, a model of a Learjet. They, they have this, this cool little bar area behind their conference room. And uh, they have a, a model of this jet. And, you know, I was asking about it one day why they had this Learjet model. And they had apparently been a part of that case. And from what I understand, everybody on board there was something that happened while the plane was flying. So the end result to that one was a crash. Okay. Uh, but my understanding of it is that in that Payne Stewart crash, everybody involved was dead prior to the plane crashing. And the catalyst for the plane crashing was actually uh, it running out of fuel because there was nobody to pilot the plane because everybody was dead. Now, look, if, if that's a little off, uh, I apologize, but that's my understanding straight from memory on that one. And so that's where you could get into uh, what this affirmative defense is saying. Hey, the defendant's conduct was not a substantial factor in the damages. So uh, let's bring it back to our helicopter piece for a second. Let's say that this helicopter we will play a little hypothetical game for a second now uh, to take a step back in the Last podcast, we talked about that there was safety equipment that was a terrain avoidance system, which wasn't that this helicopter wasn't equipped with, uh, despite the fact that this is a helicopter that uh, flies mostly mountainous regions in, in that area of California. It's pretty mountainous and it didn't have that equipment. But what let's say it did just for for the second and everything was all above board that plane was fully or that helicopter was fully authorized to fly in fog in the mountains and that pilot had never had any issues with that had never been cited for flying in the fog when he's not supposed to let's say everything the pilot did was correct and everything the company did was correct all right and you have this train avoidance system and the pilot's following it because that would be the flying by instrument piece that we talked about last time, right? You're not flying visually where you can actually see what's going on. You can actually see uh, what the train is like around you. You're actually following the uh, instruments in front of you and the instruments are telling you, hey, pull up, turn, slow down, go lower, uh, that type of thing. Okay. Let's say you have that and you've done everything else correctly. Well, let's say that piece of equipment fails. Let's say there was a defect in that piece of equipment. That's where this affirmative defense could actually come into play. Okay, so your end result could be the same. Hey, you have a helicopter crash. Yep, everybody dies as a result of the crash. Still equally as unfortunate, okay? But the pilot followed the instruments. The company put in the instruments, the helicopter company put those instruments in to keep everybody safe, and that instrument failed. Well, that is where an affirmative defense like that, so as nonsensical as it sounds and as kind of, crazy as it sounds, right? The defendant's conduct was not a substantial factor in the plaintiff's damages. There are situations where you could have that. And a lot of times you're providing these answers as a defense prior to having a hundred percent of the information. So you may still need to uh, go uh, get a, a reconstructionist 
for example, to look at the damage and decide what happened during that process, during the investigation, you may find that there's there was something wrong with a piece of equipment. And that would be where you would have that. Now, to the defense credit, they have to come up with these answers in 20 days. Then after those 20 days, there's going to be all sorts of what we call discovery. And discovery is just fact finding. So we're going to be taking depositions, which are sworn statements with a court reporter. Generally, they're in a conference room. And one of the attorneys is just peppering you with questions. Uh, the defense attorneys love to do three to four hour depositions. I generally do three to four hour depositions. Most plaintiff's attorneys generally do one to two. Uh, we don't get paid billable hours, but I like wearing defendants down and getting them tired. And then we'll all ask three hours of questions that are really designed just to make him tired to then get to the meat and potatoes in the last 15 to 20 minutes when they're over it. They're frustrated. They don't want to answer any more questions. Okay. Uh, and then there's also what we call written discovery. So it is exactly what that says it is, is it's discovery that's in writing. So you may ask questions in writing. You may ask for uh, the defendant to produce some documents, uh, things of that nature. Okay. Uh, sometimes things come out and then you can rely on this affirmative defense. But if you don't bring this up in the initial answer, you lose it. So you find that smoking gun later on that says, yes, this equipment failed. This equipment was defective and you didn't put the defendant's conduct was not a substantial factor in the plaintiff's damages. Guess what? You lose. You don't get to keep that. You don't get to bring that in later on. Okay. You either bring it in in the beginning or you don't bring it in at all. So what the pilot has really said is this is really not his fault. No, it is the fault of the passengers and it is the fault of somebody else. Okay. Um, so that is where the pilot stands and, and, you know, we didn't spend a ton of time on it because it wasn't actually the most important piece, I don't think. But it is the piece that TMZ and other media outlets picked up and ran with that the helicopter pilot blames the passengers. Now, you know, let, let's dig into that just a little bit. Right. Because that's that's the headline. The headline is Kobe Bryant and or his passengers caused the crash. They were the main reason for this crash. Well, here's the thing. Let's look at this for a second. Now, none of us were there. I wasn't there. You weren't there. Everybody who was there, unfortunately, they're no longer with us to provide any kind of insight. But let's just say this. Let's say Kobe gets up there, goes to the pilot. Hey, I want to fly. We're flying this helicopter. I don't care what you got to do. And if you don't fly this helicopter, I'm going to go find me another pilot. Okay. It's harsh, right? And it's blunt. And I, like I said, I have no idea if that's how that conversation went. But for the sake of an example, let's just say that's how that conversation went. I'm Kobe Bryant. You're flying this helicopter and we're going and that's that. Okay. I still don't think even if you had a recording of that brought that out right now, TMZ releases a recording of Kobe Bryant telling the helicopter pilot, we will be going on this helicopter. We will be making this flight. I don't think it matters. I really don't. I, I don't think that shifts any of the liability off the pilot. Now, he has a gun in his hand. He holds it to the pilot. A little bit different story. That's a little bit of an extreme, maybe more of a movie plot. Okay. Hey, get in this helicopter. We're flying. Okay. Then, yeah, okay. There, there's a different scenario. But that's so outlandish that we're not even going to look at that. But that scenario where he demands verbally that we're going to fly this helicopter – 
He's not a pilot. So, or at least to my knowledge, Kobe Bryant wasn't a pilot, that he didn't have a pilot's license. So, you know, it's really on that pilot to follow the procedures of the helicopter company. It's really on that pilot to use his expertise to say, no, we shouldn't fly. Or to say, hey, the sheriff's office and law enforcement helicopters, they've been grounded. So guess what? We're grounded too. I don't really care what you say. You want to fire me, fire me. Okay, fine. And that's where the duty of the pilot comes into play. So, you know, could you try to make that argument on the defense side that, hey, this was all Kobe Bryant's fault because Kobe Bryant said we are definitely going? You could try it. I just don't think you're going to be successful. I I think you're actually just going to make yourself look bad because at the end of the day, the pilot should be the one stepping in and saying, this is not safe. This is not proper. And we're not doing it. And if you fire me, hey, so be it. You fire me. I actually don't work for you. I actually work for this this helicopter company. So, you know, you can take it up with them. And if you want to go find another helicopter, that's fine. Right. So no idea if that's how that conversation came up. But just to, to play the hypothetical game on it, where on a defense side, you might be able to try to pin it on the passengers. I, I just don't buy it. There's there's no part of me. And maybe I'm maybe I'm a little biased being a plaintiff's attorney. I just don't see how you spin that into anything that makes sense. But that's the part that was picked up and ran with by the news media. No fault of the news media. Right. Uh, It's just that it's the legal world, as we mentioned before, is different than real world. And statements made in the legal process have slightly different meaning than in the real world. So then let's take a look real quick here at the helicopter company answer. You know, there's there's a lot of similarities between the two, uh, but there's a couple nuanced differences. And, you know, we could look at this and, and find another way for your news outlets to say, well, Kobe Bryant and his daughter, they, hey, they were the cause of the crash. It was them, uh, not us. We had nothing to do with it, right? We, hey, we may own the helicopter. We may employ the pilot, but hey, it's not on us. This is on you. And here's what they said, that Kobe Bryant and his daughter had actual knowledge of all the circumstances, dangers, and appreciation of the risks involved and voluntarily assumed it. What does that really mean? Well, they they knew that it was foggy. They knew that it was mountainous. And they knew that there was a chance that they could run to a mountain with a helicopter. And that they appreciated that risk, that they knew about that risk and understood that risk. And uh, then... Therefore, voluntarily said, yeah, we're going to get in this helicopter. And uh, you know what? If we crash, well, I guess that's on us. It's not on the company or the pilot. That's not what I'm saying. That's what that sentence is actually saying. Is it somewhat misplaced in a helicopter scenario or an aviation scenario? Probably. I mean, look, you're, they're not trained in knowing the weather patterns and when to fly and when not to fly and, and what's okay and what's not okay. Now, if we change the scenario completely and a guy, and this is kind of the, the textbook law school example, guy's cutting down a tree, guy's using a uh, chainsaw, and he cuts himself with that chainsaw, right? There was nothing wrong with the chainsaw. The chainsaw wasn't defective. He just, maybe he slipped, right? Maybe he's cutting a tree and his foot slips out from under him and he cuts his arm off, okay? 
that would be when a defense like that would make sense that that tree cutter knew what he was doing right knew that he was using something dangerous right a chainsaw uh you know even though it's meant to cut trees it's still dangerous you can still cut yourself with it you cut yourself pretty bad with it and that you chose to accept those dangers and that basically anything that came along with those dangers you you went ahead and and bought that so that it's not anybody's fault it's your fault uh you being the, the chainsaw guy so different here difference here with kobe and his daughter i'm not really sure how they would know what was correct and what was not correct in terms of flying and how that would fall on them. But another piece that news media could run with and things like that. Another interesting one that, that this was, that this crash was caused by unforeseeable events. From what I understand, the, the forecast is pretty clear, uh, clear in that it was foggy, not clear in that it was clear that you could see based on the fact that other helicopters had been grounded that day. So not really sure what the unforeseeableness of it was. Uh, the mountains didn't just pop up that day. They'd been there for years, uh, probably millions of years, um, but they've been there a long time. So not really sure what was unforeseeable, uh, that the negligence act, acts were caused by others. Well, you know, hey, maybe, maybe you, maybe you pull that one off and pin it all on the, the pilot and maybe there's no employee-employer relationship there. Uh, that gets into really nitty-gritty legal mumbo-jumbo and we're definitely not getting there. Not today, not not this deep into the podcast, maybe in a future podcast or uh, maybe if a, a law school asks me to lecture, that, that's probably the, the better place for that. And uh, any of you out there listening who do uh, run law school classes and you're looking for uh, somebody to to uh, provide lectures, be more than happy to do that. But that's a another tangent for another day. This last one is kind of interesting here. Uh, I'll go through a couple more and uh, then we'll wrap it up for the day here. Uh, but that the damages to the plaintiffs, for example, their deaths and the crash itself were caused by a new and independent cause, which was not reasonably foreseeable. Uh, fog and mountains have been around forever. So I am not really sure how any of this was new and independent, okay? But that's what they're trying to use. Uh, it would kind of be interesting to see where they're going to take that with and go. One of the other ones that I like is that it was an act of God, okay? That the crash was caused by an act of God. Yeah, maybe fog is an act of God, but it doesn't come instantaneously. So at least not in these circumstances. But the key pieces here are, as the news media had picked up, Kobe Bryant was at fault. His daughter was at fault. The passengers, no, the crash was their fault. And so we've walked through kind of how we get there. And I don't really think that these attorneys and these defendants really truly believe that the passengers were at fault, that they were the cause of the crash. But there's, there's nothing else you can do. You have to provide a defense. And that's what these defenses are. So we got into kind of the weeds here on legal aspects and a lot of legalese. And, you know, that's the tie in for us for the legal side and sports side. We're going to be getting back to some of our more regular podcasts, two podcasts from now. OK, where we talk a little bit more sports. Uh, we don't get into this heavy lifting legal stuff, but we are planning on a really special podcast for next week, uh, we have a uh, former major leaguer the and a university baseball coach that 
the three of us will be together and we will be doing uh, something for the University of Tampa. The University of Tampa's Give Day is coming up. So uh, if you are listening and you are interested in helping out the university, that's going to be on May 27th, 2020. Uh, there's going to be a, a special web-based program. Uh, and I am going to be essentially the moderator for uh, the sports side of the program. So we're going to have a special podcast the next week. And uh, I think we're just going to just take that and record that as is. I think that's going to be a good time. Uh, we're going to be telling some stories and just basically having some fun. So look out for that on the next one. Uh, I know we're running a little long here and I have apologize about that. So let's get to the good stuff. Rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please, please, please follow us on social media. Okay. Maybe a little bit of beg there. I don't know, but would love to have you all following us on social media. We're doing a lot there. Facebook and TikTok. Okay. I'm not dancing on TikTok. That's one thing that's not happening, but a lot of our videos are being put on TikTok. So go take a look there as you're scrolling through the craziness of what TikTok is. Stop and look at some of our videos. We uh, try to put some informative and some cool stuff on there, uh, both Facebook and TikTok at The Law Father. Instagram is at The Law Father Tampa. I do do stories, and as you see here today, doing live on here. And Twitter, uh, at The Law Father TPA. Check us out in all those places. As always, if you want to talk to me, 855-LAWFATHER. And if you have a question for the show, lawfather at Tampa, lawfather.com. Lawfather, out. This is a place for my head quick fix on Radio Influence. You guys might know him from Puddle of Mud. You might know him from Operator. You might know him from Rev Theory. He's one hell of a guitarist, one hell of a songwriter. His name is Paul Phillips. Dwelling doesn't help. You know, it only adds to the uh, to the anxiety because once you start dwelling on something and overthinking something and you get fixated on something, then it just becomes something crazy circulating in your head. You can't stop it. So then what do you do? Grab yeah, a and I was I was just talking. That's funny you say that because I, I was just talking with a friend kind of about that. It was kind of been uh, going through it a little bit. He's like, man, he's like, it's just not normal, man. He's like, I just, I just get drunk, and then I do these terrible things, and then I wake up the next day and I feel guilty about it. So what do I do? I drink more to make myself feel better, and then I just do more stupid things that I yeah. feel guilty about. I'm like, yep. It's a vicious cycle, man. Vicious, vicious cycle. The roller coaster you can't you can't get off. They keep passing that loading spot. And you're like, uh, can I get out now? Take the seatbelt off? No, we're just gonna keep going. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Strap up. <laughs> yeah, man. Strap up. It's gonna be a while. Yep, 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 yep. Oh god. Uh, <laughs> and how do you break it? It takes. You know, you said it a little bit ago. Like it's everybody's own lives and what they want to do with it. This, that, and the other. But uh, I truly, 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 truly think that. Nothing will really work unless you want it to. Yeah, 100%, man. Yeah, I mean, hey, man, if you go to rehab one time or you go to AA meetings or, or what have you, and it works for you, hey, man, that is fantastic. I'm glad it did. I would personally say it's not, that's not for me, you know. And, you know, like you said, people going in and out of rehabs, like including myself. Yeah, I mean, you can go through the motions and like, sweet, I finished rehab. All right, I'm going to come outside. Everything's going to be great. I'm not going to worry about anything. No, wrong. You're not even going to make it to the airport before your life sucks. So what are you going to do at the airport? You're going to go to the bar and get a drink. All that rehab was worked amazingly. A Place for My Head with Brandon Thompson and Jerry P. Tuck can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.